0: on Saturday, October 20th, an article came out in the Salt Lake Tribune by Peggy Fletcher Stack entitled, Latter-day Nod to Anarchy. And in this article, a new publication was described, which is entitled, The Mormon Worker, um, which is the brainchild of uh, a young LDS man named William von Wagenen. And so, William, uh, welcome to Mormon Stories Podcast. Uh,
1: Thanks. Uh, Glad to be here.
0: So, um, wow, uh, what an exciting article uh, to come out. Why don't you tell us, just to, just give our listeners an overview of uh, what The Mormon Worker is and how you got uh, an article in the Salt Lake Tribune. Uh,
1: well, uh, the, the Mormon Worker is, is uh, a, a, basically a newspaper um, that we're going to publish uh, hopefully six times a year, uh, about every two months. And it basically covers uh, a wide range of issues—political, religious, economic—from um, a Mormon perspective, uh, but it's also from a left-wing or uh, an anarchist perspective. Um, you know, maybe to start out, it might be you know important to say a little bit uh, about what anarchism is because it's uh... it's a it's a word and a concept that's pretty misunderstood. Um, largely because there are kind of two definitions of the word anarchy or anarchism. Uh, When people talk about anarchy popularly, obviously, they think of chaos and destruction and disorder. And so when we're talking about anarchism, um, we're actually talking about something that's essentially the exact opposite of that, which is um, uh, a political philosophy that advocates um, uh, a socialist society uh, where there is uh, no uh, uh, no no government or socialism, where people voluntarily participate uh, to have a communal economic system. No one's forced uh, to participate or to do things that way. Um, and that's kind of the thing that differenti- differentiates um, anarchism uh, from communism, so to speak. Communism is based on force and, and forcing people with violence to do uh... things uh... economically the way that uh... you know the, the communists want to do it and with anarchists it's the opposite where uh... we believe socialism is uh... you know the best way to do things to ensure that there are not poor people and so that the wealth of of the world uh... you know is, is uh... you know by and large uh, equally shared in common and um... but we believe it's uh... you know important for that to all be voluntary and for people to voluntarily um, create these different economic relationships that are more equitable than you'd get under a capitalist system, obviously. So,
0: So, um, um, so what, what's the, before we, I want to actually jump back and talk about your, your history and your, and your, you know, what led you to this point and then, and talk more about your ideas. But, um, what's the response been to the, to the newspaper article? Um,
1: it, well, it's actually been, uh, you know, by and large, pretty positive. I think on the Salt Lake Tribune website, uh, you know, a lot of people left comments after the article, and there were quite a few uh, very hostile comments, but um, ever since then, I've just gotten, uh, you know, a lot of uh, really very positive emails and a lot of people that uh, have just been like, hey, you know, thank you so much for putting this out. Um, you know, it makes us so happy to see that, and people kind of saying that, um you know, it's so good to see that there are Mormons who aren't right-wing and uh, don't support the war and uh, and different things like this. So I think there are a lot of Mormons that um, don't necessarily agree with the prevailing uh, political climate here in Utah, at least. And um, oftentimes feel like they're the only ones that maybe don't agree with what's the, the way things are going right now. And so for them to suddenly see in the Salt Lake Tribune an article about uh, Mormons that uh, you know, are left-wing or socialist or anarchist and against the war. Um, they're just really, uh, you know, they're really kind of heartened by that and uh, and we're like, oh, wow, I guess I'm not the only one who thinks this way. You know, there are other people who are uh, trying to be faithful Mormons and who feel like um, they, you know, it's the, the proper thing to be a socialist and against the war uh, because you're Mormon as opposed to... Uh, in, in you know, thinking of that Mormonness. way in spite of being Mormon. So,
0: so, so uh, you
1: know, it's so, been good.
0: So tell us about um, anything in your youth or young adulthood that led you to the point of being uh, a socialist or an anarchist.
1: Um, yeah, I mean, I guess it's a combination of a lot of experiences, but... Um, a lot of it I think, you know, does come down just to uh over time going to Sunday school and going to church every week and um, you know, reading the Bible and the Book of Mormon here and there. I mean I wasn't any, you know, more or less religious than the next kid. I was just, you know, an average kid, but it did strike me that um uh on occasion that when economic issues were brought up in the scriptures, um, you know, it always was talking about uh how uh, the Nephites in Fourth Nephi had all things common. Uh, among them, and the same in uh, the New Testament regarding the early uh, Christians that they shared all their possessions in common. And um, early on, the only alternatives I kind of knew about were communism and capitalism. And so I remember being you know pretty interested in communism and reading uh, the Communist Manifesto and different things like this, just because you know uh, those phrases where some of the early saints had all things in common just seemed clearly, contrary to capitalism where, you know, the idea is you try to accumulate as much wealth as you can. And, um, you know, obviously after reading, uh, you know, a decent amount of communist material, it became pretty clear that that wasn't the way to go. And obviously, you know, as president, Ezra Taft Benson has, uh, you know, was obviously pretty famous for denouncing communism. And I think rightly so, because it's, uh, based on force and violence. And so I actually agree with, uh, you know, president Benson's, uh, uh, analysis of communism, but unfortunately, you know, people then tend to think, that, oh, well, capitalism must then be the right thing because communism is bad. And so, anyways, when I was younger, I, you know, those are only kind of two options I I knew about. And um, when I was on my mission in, uh, I, I started a mission in uh, Frankfurt, Germany, and there was a guy I met um, named Manuel who uh, was a friend of a member. And he was kind of like a, you know, kind of a, a German punk kid. And we just used to play soccer with him sometimes on our P days. And he was just a pretty cool guy. Um, and about two years after my mission, um, I uh, went back just to visit, you know, uh, some people that I had baptized and just friends from my mission. And, uh, you know, I hung out with him a little bit. And he gave me this book um, called uh, The German... Anarchists of Chicago, or Why America Doesn't Recognize May Day. It was in German, but that's kind of a bad translation of the title. Um, and It was a book about uh, the, the Haymarket Square martyrs um, that lived in, in Chicago in the late 1800s. Uh, there were these German anarchists who were uh, organizing to pass laws for an eight-hour workday, and there was an incident where they were... Um, you know, at a rally uh, promoting the eight-hour workday or promoting the passage of laws for an eight-hour workday. And uh, a group of police came and uh, into the crowd, and we're going to start arresting people and so forth. And and uh, someone, uh, I guess I shouldn't be giving this much detail probably, but uh, at any rate, some, someone threw a stick of dynamite or a bomb into the crowd of police and killed a few policemen. And No one ever figured out who actually did that, but all of the most prominent um, anarchist, uh, anarchists and labor organizers in Chicago at the time were kind of rounded up and, and uh, put on trial um, and just found guilty kind of regardless of, of uh, whether they were involved or not, and uh, a and number of them were executed. So that was a pretty famous uh, event in, in, in workers' history, I guess. And to commemorate the execution of these uh, uh, of these uh, you know five or six anarchists that uh, that uh, you know again didn't participate in that bombing or killing those police but were executed nonetheless. That's where May Day came from. Around,
0: around, around, what Day around what year I was it? Around what year was I believe it was 1886. Okay.
1: Um, my my memory there is a little bit sketchy. That's a, a lot of years since since I read the book, but. But anyway, he gave me this book. It was in German, and I read it. And then a lot of um, there were a lot of kind of certain, you know political speeches that these uh, German anarchists living in Chicago gave. You know, they were recorded in the book, and that's where I you know first was exposed to anarchism. And that was uh, you know more uh, of the socialism that I thought was compatible you know compatible with uh, what I was reading in the scriptures because it did emphasize assisting the poor having things in common, but it wasn't based on force. It was based on uh, free mutual cooperation, you might say. And so that's when I kind of first got um, introduced to it. But
0: now, no other real experience. Real, real oh, quick, the, the, one of the things that's mentioned in the Peggy Fletcher-Stack article is the wisdom in using the term anarchist. Um, you, you've talked about this a bit, but I just want to ask you about it again. You know, the average um, probably person or LDS person is going to think anarchist means anarchy, it means no government, which means no democracy, uh, which means no constitution. Um, is that is that a safe sort of assumption, or is that getting it wrong?
1: Um, is it safe to assume that most... Uh, uh, that
0: anarchists would want to do away with the government?
1: Um, yes, but yes, when they say that... It, when they, when we, when we say we'd like to you know uh, have no government it doesn't mean that you want uh, you know chaos or anarchy in the sense that there's there's no organization to society and everyone's just kind of running around uh, killing each other you know uh, what, what it what it really or well, that there's no democracy because in fact uh, anarchism is is actually an extension of uh, would be an extension of the democracy that we have in the United States. Today, for example, um, you know, you know, a few hundred years ago, um, virtually every government was a monarchy, and later on, you know, Democrats began pushing for the idea that political power should be, uh, you know, spread out among as many people as possible, or to everyone, essentially. Um, you know, everyone should vote, everyone should participate in making political decisions, and so on and so forth. And so... And that, you know, from an anarchist perspective, is a very good thing. Um, However, if you have political democracy, um, but at the same time there's no economic democracy, meaning that we have large corporations that are uh, authoritarian, hierarchical institutions who have a lot of power to influence the political process, um, workers um, that work for those companies or corporations, um, have absolutely no say or input into how things are run, into how profits uh, are used uh, that are made from uh, their labor while working for that company and so forth. And anarchists would say, well, that's a bad thing. So just like political, you know, political power um, should be dispersed amongst as many people as possible, which you have in, in a political democracy, we'd like to take that concept and also extend it to the economic realm so that you know, corporations are run democratically, where the workers uh, have a say in how corporations are run. Workers own the companies themselves, uh, share the, share the profits amongst each other. So there isn't a situation where a CEO is making, you know, $10, $20 dollars a year, while workers, um, you know, are making, uh, you know, a few dollars an hour, um, and so on and so forth. Um, so that is is the, kind of what we mean by anarchism. There, there wouldn't necessarily need to be a government um, if um, economic power was decentralized and 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 workers themselves had um, you know a way to actually uh, run their lives and make decisions for their own lives, just like you know theoretically we can in a political way by voting and so on and so
0: forth. So, has has anarchy ever? been implemented in any country to any level of success or is this mostly theoretical
1: um well <clears throat> that's a, that's a good question that's a, that's a question that comes up uh, a whole lot you know when i talk to people because a lot of times people are like well you know that sounds really great uh, it would be great if there weren't any poor it'd be great if um you know everyone had enough uh the resources that they need to live and had enough food and and uh a roof over their heads, and so on and so forth. But uh, it's just not possible, or they would say, but unless people are perfect, um, there's no way it could be implemented. And um, there are, uh, however, some not very well-known, but there are some examples um, of societies that have operated uh, you know, along these lines. Um, there are some examples uh, in, uh, in, in Russia right during and after the russian revolution uh before the bolsheviks or the communists uh came to power and basically smashed um, all the workers councils uh, that had arisen in in russia to run factories and farms and so on and so forth um, in fact that's what the word soviet means is workers council and so it's uh it, you know it's pretty sad that it was actually the the, the communists or the or the bolsheviks who, when they came to power, uh, you know stamped out all these workers councils that had arisen as a result of the revolution, um, where you know peasants in Russia uh, essentially started working their own land instead of paying all the proceeds from there, you know whatever they grew on the land, giving it to a landowner and, and uh, Russian workers in factories, they would just basically take possession of the factories and run them themselves and you know disperse the you know the profits amongst themselves and amongst their communities. Those are the type of things that were going on in Russia uh, right during the revolution in 1917 when the when Tsar was overthrown, and it was the Bolsheviks who came in and, and basically hijacked that and turned Russia into a dictatorship. So, um, so,
0: so, so far, it's, it's sort of been implemented in small degrees at, at, at short points in history, but never like a, a, a major country implementing it on a, on a large scale.
1: Uh, yeah, correct. yeah, that would be correct. Uh, the, the Spanish Civil War is another uh, example that people could look into. Um, a current modern-day example um, would be the uh, Zapatista communities in uh, yeah. Chiapas, Mexico, Mexico, Yeah, that uh, function uh, along uh, anarchist lines. But another thing, what's, uh, for Mormons, uh, if we're believing Mormons and we believe the Book of Mormon is the Word of God and we believe uh, the Bible is the Word of God and, and that the Doctrine and Covenants is the Word of God, it seems to me that even if these ideas do seem, uh, you know, pretty crazy and pretty far-fetched, you know, which I must admit, you know, they, they do uh, initially, uh, it seems to me that as a Mormon, these are ideas that we should take seriously because of the fact that they are found in our scriptures. It, you know, in 4th Nephi, it does talk about how uh, their, you know, the Nephites had a society after Christ came uh, to the Americas where there were no poor among them. There weren't any classes of people, um, and so it seems to me that that is, uh, you know, to us, you know, non-Mormons would say, "Oh, it's you know, it's just a, uh, it's just a myth, it's just a fairy tale." But to Mormons, we believe that those uh, events that actually happened, that they're historical, and so we should say, "Hey, there really were societies that were able to, um, you know, have no poor among them, share their share their goods, and uh, and have real economic equality." And so I think that. Uh, should at least force Mormons to take these ideas uh, more seriously than even other people would. I mean, if you're not a Mormon, you could say, well, great ideas, but, you know, it's impossible. But I think as 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 a Mormon, you should say, well, uh, it really did happen, and that's really something that we can't strive for.
0: So let's, let's talk about the theological in just a second, but let me start with just the practical. Um, and, and there's a bit of theology uh, woven in here, but if you think about it— um, you know, America reigns, the United States of America reigns supreme politically and economically and militarily across the world. Um, you know, capitalism defeated communism or socialism in, in the 1980s or 90s or whatever. Um, you know, Mormons tend to be Republican um, and, uh, you know, to, to many to, to a large degree, I think the average American and definitely the average conservative Republican American, which most Mormons tend to be, would say that America is, you know, the Constitution's inspired by God. America has a divine mandate. Capitalism is clearly the way. Um, and, and any attempt to, uh, to even consider something that isn't capitalistic, that isn't, um, you know, pro-American and and pro-tradition is sort of just heresy and outlandish and a pipe dream. So before we talk about the theological, you know, you obviously have to know that this is a major uphill battle you're facing um, just to surmount the political and the economic positions of of most Mormons. Uh, And then we'll, we'll talk about the theological in just a second. But I know you realize that because you probably have to talk to people about this all the time. So, you know, what makes you feel confident that, that you could make headway here? And, you know, what's your ultimate realistic dream of the results of your efforts? Do you actually see a day when America uh, becomes uh, anarchistic?
1: Um. Obviously, the day that you know that there is an an anarchist society in America I think is pretty far off, and I'm sure I'll be long dead before that happens um however you know i I still feel like it's valuable to promote these uh ideas because if they do have um, you know there are uh it does lead to good results if people think more along these terms um so if people feel like um uh, for example, that war for gain uh, is wrong. Then there is a chance that you know people here in America, even if we never institute an anarchist society. But if people look at you know what's going on from an anarchist perspective, which uh, makes you uh, you know very critical of authority. Uh, if the government is doing anything, you know you're going to look at that very closely and scrutinize what's going on. And say, well, why are we going to you know to war in Iraq? Is it really to liberate uh, Iraqis? Is it really about weapons mass destruction? And it, it causes you to start asking some questions about what people in power are doing. And I think anyone who does that will find that the reasons that people in power, uh, you know, particularly in the case of the Iraq War, the reasons that they're doing uh, what they, uh, you know, go into war and so on and so forth, uh, and the reasons that they're saying they're doing this are very different from the reasons that they're actually doing it, and it, you know it, it allows people to see more clearly what's going on politically and try to organize against that. And even now it does seem kind of futile to try and you know end the Iraq war through uh, you know activism and so on and so forth. But you do have to remember that that's how the Vietnam War uh, essentially ended. Um, because of the fact that the American populace was very anti-war because of the Vietnam War, so in the decades after the Vietnam War, as a result of the the terrible tragedy of the Vietnam War, that prevented the United States government from from waging other wars. Um, A lot of the the things that the U.S. government did in Latin America in the 1980s had to be done underground. Uh, The CIA had to do things, uh, totally underground, fund, other wars in Latin America, um, in you know through back channels, as opposed to just openly being able to invade some of those countries, and a lot of that was because you know Americans, by and large, had this aversion to war, which has now been broken down again thanks to uh, 9/11. But um, uh, so I think there are actually some good consequences that can, can come from people thinking uh, from an anarchist perspective, even if such a society is never actually realized. Um, regarding, uh, you know, uh, LDS people, uh, being mostly conservative and Republican and pro-war and so on and so forth, um, I, I, really do think that that is more of a cultural thing, uh, just has to do with, you know, people's particular upbringings and just, uh, it, it's just a cultural thing. It's not a theological thing. It's not because, uh, Mormonism says that that's the way things should be. And so I have actually found that many people who are quite conservative, when uh, they've read some of the things I've written, especially about the Iraq War um, about, and about anarchism and so on and so forth, they're actually very, very accepting of those ideas because, you know, once they're exposed to a new viewpoint, which they can see is grounded in uh, Mormon scriptures, they're very quick to uh, embrace some of these different ways of looking at things uh, even if you know their whole lives, they grew up uh, Republican and conservative, and so on and so forth. Now, that doesn't always happen. You know, a lot of times there's pretty intense resistance, and people get quite upset, and you know, call me an apostate and and, and all kinds of things. But uh, I really feel like Mormons are more prone to view the world this way if, if they can actually be exposed to that viewpoint. And I think that is the biggest problem so far is that if you grow up in Utah you know chances are you never even hear a good argument against the Iraq war I mean you just don't hear it and if you're not exposed to that viewpoint and additional information that sheds light on why the Iraq war is wrong and the terrible uh, you know tragedy that' it's caused for the Iraqi people then you are prone to support it because in in the news whether it's CNN or Fox or whatever you're only getting at the pro government uh, viewpoint so
0: so so, no, it's, it sounds like you're kind of saying that, um, that if all you do is help people uh, see the importance of, uh, of how oppressive capitalistic systems can be, if you get people to reconsider their support of the war a little bit, and if you just help move the needle, you'll feel like you've contributed something, even if it stops far, far short of uh, the full implementation of an anarchistic system.
1: Yeah, no, for sure. And, you know, that was a big reason I uh, decided to go to Iraq for for the first time uh, in in 2005 was not because I thought, oh, I'm going to go stop the war or, you know, anything crazy like that. But I heard about this organization called Christian Peacemaker Teams. Actually, I met a few people from their organization uh, who were working in the West Bank in Palestine. Uh, I was studying uh, in the West Bank uh, at a Palestinian university in 2003, and I met some of these people there. And then, um, you know, a couple years later, after the Iraq War, uh, or, well, a a couple years later when I was graduating from, or finishing graduate school, um, I knew that Christian Peacemaker Teams was working in Iraq, and what they were doing was helping families whose, uh, you know, uh, sons and fathers or whoever had been detained by, Uh, the U.S. Army, and were now in prison, Um, Christian Peacemaker Teams, or CPT, they would just help those families locate their their relatives who were in prison, Uh, you know, not so they could even get them released or anything like that, but just so the families would know that their sons or fathers or brothers were alive um, and and were just there in detention. And so that was the work that CPT was doing, and I thought, you know what, Uh, it just breaks my heart that, you know, thousands of innocent Iraqis are uh, wallowing in, in detention in these U.S. jails, are being tortured um, and abused and so forth, as we all know from the Abu Ghraib, uh, uh, you know, photos that came out and as well as other evidence. And I thought, you know what, if I could go to Iraq and help some families locate their, uh, you know, their relatives like that and give them some peace of mind and try to, in, in a very, very small way, mitigate some of the terrible effects of the war... I thought, well, boy, that would just be awesome. You know? So,
0: so, how does somebody just go to Iraq? How do you go to uh, Iraq? And how do you? What well, do you do when you get there?
1: These, these days, obviously, it's a lot harder than uh, than it was in the past. Um, in fact, right when the war, right after you know the initial invasion ended, or the initial invasion ended, uh, there were no visas. The borders are totally open. Uh, there were a lot of NGOs operating there. Uh, and, you know, over the course of the years, as the violence has gotten worse and worse, and the situation has deteriorated, uh, obviously it's much harder, because, you know, so many people are getting killed, you do now need visas, and, and there are so few NGOs working there that it really is a difficult thing, but, um, you know, back in the day, 2003, 2004, 2005, it was much easier, and, um, you know, I, I just volunteered to work for Christian Peacemaker Teams. Um, spent some time in Columbia with them, kind of getting to know the organization. They have a project in Columbia. Um, you know, went to a month-long training and then, uh, you know, went and, and began working for them in Iraq. So do they you know, do they, they pay you or do you,
0: do you have to pay to go? How how is this it,
1: financed? It was it was just volunteer, so I didn't get paid anything. But, but I do, do they
0: pay your food and lodging?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, they just basically covered basic uh, basic expenses. I didn't pay them anything, but they uh, they didn't pay me any money. It was just a volunteer thing.
0: So food and lodging are covered. Yeah. So how long were you in Iraq? Uh,
1: the, the first time uh, in two thousand five, I was there for four months. It was from uh, May of two thousand five until uh, until September of two thousand five, and I was living in Baghdad, and then. Um, I came home at the end of those four months, I was back home in Utah for you know, roughly a year, and then went to Iraq again uh, the second time in uh, November of 2006 until uh, February of 2007, uh, and the second time I was up in the Kurdish region in the north um, in a city called Sulaimania, where actually things are, are quite a bit safer than, than in
0: Baghdad. Weren't you just terrified going to Iraq?
1: Um yeah, I mean it was it was a scary thing. I remember being in in Amman, uh, Jordan. You know, the night before I was going to catch my flight to Baghdad, and you know, you read so many things about people getting killed and kidnapped and this and that. That uh, I definitely thought to myself, "Well, boy, you know, this is this a good idea?" But uh, you know, just felt like it strongly, like it was the, the right thing to do. And and to a certain degree, you know, you kind of feel like, "Well, it won't happen to me," type of thing. Um, you know, which, uh, is, is, uh, I guess a bit naive. Um, but, um, you know, even when I was in Baghdad, even, I mean, this is the sad thing is that there are millions of Iraqis, you know, 20 million, 25 million Iraqis, however many, uh, people live in the country. There are millions of people that every single day, um, don't know if they'll make it through the day. They don't know when their kids go to school. Uh, or their husband goes to work, they don't know if they're going to come back. They don't know if there's going to be a bombing, you know, if you're going to be walking down the street and there'll be a bombing and that's it, I mean, you're dead. Or if, you know, you'll be kidnapped, um, if, uh, you know, uh, the U.S. Army will drop a 500-pound bomb on some house in the block and and you or your relatives or someone will, will die. And, and uh, so, yeah, I, for four months in, in Baghdad, where things were really crazy every day you're kind of it's in the back of your mind you're like oh man is something bad going to happen today and uh and it's something you think about and i lived through that for four months but iraqis have been living through that since uh 2003 you know four years now every day and um and also, it was really terrible under Saddam. It's much worse now than under Saddam, but also it was very bad under Saddam. So, you know, about what uh, Iraqis go through on, on just a daily basis, year after year after year. And, um, I mean, that's why Iraqis basically are, almost every Iraqi I knew was basically had this feeling of despair and depression so many of their friends have been killed, so many of their family members have been killed, and there's just terrible stories just going all over the place there that, I mean, it's really hard to even fathom, and, and I got a taste of it for four months, but, you know, what Iraqis have been through is just, you know, so much worse than even what I experienced.
0: So what how, what it was, was your role time. when you were there? How were you providing relief?
1: Um, so again, that's what we were doing, trying to help people locate their relatives in, in the American prisons. Um, also, when I was there, there ended up being um, a lot of torture that uh, the Iraqi security forces were engaged in. Uh, you know, when the U.S. Uh, set up a new Iraqi government, they began uh, establishing a new police force and a new army and uh, training them and so on and so forth. And particularly in that summer in 2005 uh, was when um, a lot of these death squads began. Uh, going around and engaging in sectarian killings, which obviously are very common now, but at the time that was very new. Uh, most of the the death squads were um, uh... coming uh, were basically commando squads um, that were run out of the Iraqi Ministry of Interior. Uh, again, you know they've been uh, trained by Americans and so on and so forth. These were the guys that were going around uh, murdering people and. So, you you know, start finding bodies popping up uh, just on the side of the road and in the rivers and things like this. Um, So when that started happening, um, a lot of torture was going on as well. Sorry, people who were being arrested uh, by the Iraqi police, being taken to prisons, uh, run by the Ministry of Interior. They'd be uh, interrogated and tortured by uh, the Iraqi police. Uh, Oftentimes they'd be interrogated by uh, Americans as well. And then... um, uh, you could get being tortured in really terrible ways, uh, electric shocks to the genitals being hung from uh, their ankles, or hung from the ceiling by their ankles. There were a lot of accounts of, uh, you know, people being tortured with uh, electric power drills and so on and so forth. Um, so anyways, a lot of people were being killed and tortured in this way by the Iraqi security forces, and so uh, we were trying to document cases of torture and also cases where, uh, people had been uh, killed extrajudicially by the police and trying to pass that uh, information on to larger human rights groups like uh, Human Rights Watch uh, and also the, the UN Office for Human Rights uh, in Iraq uh, there in the green zone just to, to uh, you know, um, uh, publicize the fact that this type of stuff was going on.
0: So, So while um, you were in Baghdad, were you always in the green zone?
1: Uh, no, we actually lived uh, just in a regular neighborhood in in Baghdad.
0: And did you yeah, see did you see explosions and and war and stuff going on around you?
1: Yeah, I mean, there there were in our neighborhood. There was usually about one bombing per week. Like um, you'd,
0: you'd be sitting there working and you'd hear a bomb go off.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. a lot of times it happened early in the mornings. So sometimes you'd even be asleep still, and and you'd be woken up by. Uh, the sound of a bomb, it would kind of, you know, shake the windows a little bit, and you would go up to the top of our building and, and look out and see where the explosion had hit. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that was pretty common. About, um, I can't remember exactly what happened, but maybe a month after I left, um, I could be wrong on this, but, you know, a month or two or three months after I left, actually a mortar hit our building and uh, shattered all the windows out, and no one from our organization was, was hurt, but, um, another colleague I worked with, a guy from Canada, he was walking down the street one day in our neighborhood and a bomb went off, you know, maybe 30, 40 yards from him. Um, so yeah, I mean, it was, it was uh, pretty much a weekly, uh, occurrence, so.
0: And the, the, the Tribune article mentions that a colleague of yours that you were close to by the name of Tom Fox, you spent a lot of time with him and he actually, uh, uh was killed in Iraq. Can you talk a little bit about what Tom was like? If he had an influence on you and uh how how you found out about his demise?
1: Um yeah, I mean he he um was was working there that summer um when I was we actually shared a room. And uh Tom was just a really great guy. He was a Quaker from uh, Washington DC. And, um, uh, had been in Iraq, you know, I think since the fall of 2004, um, and, uh, just a, just a, just a really kind and, and a great guy. Um, I mean, it really, uh, you know, broke his heart to see all of the terrible things that were going on there. Again, people being detained and tortured and, and, um, so obviously he just, you know, wanted to do his kind of small part in, uh. Trying to alleviate uh, a lot of that suffering, and um, he's, he's a pretty quiet guy. He was tall and skinny. He was bald. He didn't you know? He, he didn't really have much hair at all. Um, but uh, just a really, really nice and, uh, and kind individual. But um, he was, in fact, uh, like you mentioned, kidnapped in um, since the, I believe the beginning of uh, I believe uh, the beginning of December uh, 2005. Uh, you know, just a couple months after I came home and, uh, he and three other people from our organization were kidnapped at the same time. Um, you know, they were coming back from an appointment, um, in a neighborhood called, uh, in, uh, in Baghdad. It's a, it's a Sunni neighborhood and, um, you know, some gunmen stopped their car, um, uh, you know told the translator and the driver, you know, basically kicked their, their translator and drivers out and, you know, sped sped off with them. And then they were all held for about four months. And, um, Tom finally, I believe it was in March of, uh, of 2006. Um, you know, after four months in, in captivity, his body was found, uh, on the side of the road. He, you know, been shot, I believe, in the head. Hmm. And, um... Luckily, the other three people who were captive with him um, were uh, actually uh, um, released or rescued uh, by the British military a couple weeks later. There's a little bit of ambiguity about how that all actually went down, whether it was kind of a rescue or it was kind of a negotiated release. I don't um, sort of know the details of how that happened, but um, luckily the other three, um, you know, were released and, uh, and are still alive today, obviously, so... It was that Tom because he was such a great, you know a great guy, and he actually wrote a lot of really uh, excellent stuff about pacifism. That uh, you know, I, I thought you know it would be awesome to include uh, an article by him about pacifism and so on the front page of the of the Mormon Worker. Uh, there's an article there by uh, by Tom Fox about pacifism. So,
0: so um, uh, I know that you know because the article because the Sully Tribune article also mentions that you were kidnapped. Um, and and your experience with Tom, you know, what does that do? What I assume are you from Utah? Yeah, so, so, what does it do to a to a Mormon kid from Utah to go to Iraq to see a buddy die, to not only have friends get kidnapped, to experience that yourself? Does that change your life forever? And how does it change you? Um,
1: yeah, I mean. I, uh, although I guess you know, being an LDS, it's it's a little bit like when you know you go to any LDS uh, funeral, and you know what do people talk about? They talk about uh, the resurrection, and they talk about the plan of salvation, and um, so when 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 Tom died, I mean, I was back here in Utah. I mean, I first heard that he he was kidnapped, obviously. And then you know, a couple months later, got a phone call from someone in CPT. One night, I still remember that really vividly. I was just going to, you know, pick up a girl to basically go on a date. Um, really nice girl named Natalie. And uh, just as I was basically pulling up to her apartment, uh, you know, I got a call, and I didn't know the number. And uh, you know, I was kind of, kind of had a bad feeling. You know, just anytime I got a, a call from an unknown number, thinking, well, oh, boy, maybe there's some, there's some bad news about Tom and the other guys, and um, and sure enough, you know, they called and said, you know, Tom's body was found today, he was killed. And, uh, you know, besides just being sad and depressed and starting to cry, uh, you know, just in typical Mormon fashion, I um, just, you know, obviously began thinking to myself that, you know, Tom was uh, such a Christ-like person and all he ever wanted to do was to help other people, and uh, you know, in the end, uh, he was killed for it. You know, which obviously, no one, um, you know, there was nothing nothing good about that. Obviously, to be killed or martyred or something like that. But uh, at the same time, it was uh, you know comforting to know that Tom was such a Christ-like person that obviously he was in a better place, and and that he still existed. Uh, you know, even though he passed on, he'll you know, be resurrected and and, and so on and so forth. So that's, you know, a lot of um, what I thought about when uh, when I finally got the news that, uh, that Tom had been killed.
0: So. But what, um, just, just the overall experience in Iraq, how will you be different in the rest of your life than you would have been had you not had that Iraq experience? Or how will you be different from the average 29-year-old Mormon who grew up in Utah, in, in your mind? How is that experience... Overall, just the whole Iraq experience, change your resolve or your commitment or your goals or your priorities or your outlook for what you see as the rest of your life. How are you going to be different than you would have been or that other people probably are today?
1: Um. Uh. I guess. Obviously, it puts a lot of things in perspective. Like in, in, in one way, it's much easier to be happy, and in other ways, uh, a lot of times it's impossible impossible to be happy. And, uh, I guess it sounds contradictory, but let me explain why it's after seeing people that are living through such terrible conditions and I, I can't emphasize enough, you know, the terrible tragedy that has resulted from uh, you know the U.S invasion of Iraq. And Iraqis, there is like they most of them actually welcomed the Americans because their life under Saddam was so bad mm-hmm. they couldn't imagine that things could get worse and when the Americans came and as a result of the things that the Americans have done there, um you know and not to put all the blame on on uh, on the Americans because al qaeda and and uh you know some Iraqi armed groups themselves have done really terrible things but Uh, you know, it was the U.S. invasion that was the catalyst for all the chaos and terror and madness that exists there now, Uh, you know, not to mention just the things that uh, the United States uh, has done itself in terms of killing people and and causing misery directly. But, um, I mean, when you see people that live in such terrible conditions, then coming back to the United States, if I ever start thinking, oh, well, gee, my life's pretty hard. I don't have a job I like or, you know, there's this girl I liked and she's not returned my phone calls and, and, uh, oh, gee, you know, this and this and this isn't going the way I want it to go in life. Uh, you know, you just start to think, oh, well, my gosh, how can I possibly, uh, you know, think that my life, you know, how can I feel sorry for myself when, gee, look what these other people are going through, you know? So uh, in that regard, it, it's much easier to be content with life and, and just feel grateful for, you know, what I've got. On the other hand, it's harder to be happy in that, uh, you know, there's been a lot of times where things were going awesome for me and, I, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm just thinking to myself, man, life is just awesome. And then, you know, after a second or two, I think, well, wait a minute. It's awesome for me. Life's great, going great for me. But, you know, what about all these other people in Iraq, you know? And so how, how can you really just sit there and be happy about how the world is or even how my life is when things are going really well, when I know that, you know, look at all these other people who are uh, experiencing such misery and, and such sadness and, uh, and so much fear on, uh, on a daily basis, you know? And from being in Iraq myself, I mean, I got just enough of it to have a, a small glimpse of what those people are going through, but again, what they're experiencing is, is uh, you know, hundreds or thousands of times worse than than what I, uh, you know, ever had to go through. And that includes having, you know, a friend killed and and having some close calls myself. So, I mean, I guess those are some of the ways that uh, you know that has changed me.
0: So. Give, give us a real quick take on, you know, the average Mormon in Utah probably is very much in support of President Bush, in support of uh, the invasion of Iraq, maybe not thrilled with how the war has gone, but still maintaining the conviction that it was the right thing to do. Can you give in one or two minutes your best um, sort of uh, thoughts and feelings and experience on why that opinion might be misguided?
1: um you know i guess it's, i would just ask those people to you know think about the effect that it's had on uh, everyday iraqis and think about the you know now hundreds of thousands of people that have been killed and the complete and, and utter chaos that iraq is in and the fact that all the reasons that were given to go to war were were not correct And the fact that now, you know, the United States is uh, doing its best to radically alter uh, Iraq's oil industry. Um, It was nationalized before, and now uh, U.S. corporations are are moving in to sign contracts, uh, profit-sharing agreements so that they can exploit that oil. Um, You know, the United States has, has not done anything to benefit Iraq. The government in Iraq that exists today, even though it was, uh, you know, put in place through a democratic process in which Iraqis actually voted, uh, you know, which obviously is a good thing. But if you look at the human rights record and what kind of atrocities uh, the current Iraqi government is committing, you know, along with the atrocities the Americans are committing, uh, those uh, far uh, are far greater than the kinds of atrocities that Saddam was uh, he you know, was perpetrating. Um,
0: How is that? Yeah, tell me what you, tell us what you mean by that
1: um in terms of i guess well there there are certain periods obviously where uh i i' it's probably get you asking that question just so I can uh expand on that a little bit because there are certain times when Saddam killed enormous numbers of people um, the the first uh, example I could give is the Anfal campaign against the Kurds in uh, the late eighties um and just point out that the United States actively supported Saddam uh, during those terrible atrocities against the Kurds in which he killed about 200,000 people. Uh, Secondly were the uprisings in uh, 1991 after the the first Gulf War where uh, the United States deliberately um, allowed Saddam Hussein to continue flying his helicopters so he could put down uh, a revolt uh, uh, from the Shiites in which a few hundred thousand Shiites were killed. So again, Saddam did that with, uh, you know, uh, with U.S. support. Um, but after those periods of time, even though Iraq was a police state, uh, and still people were being tortured, and you know, political enemies of Saddam were being killed here and there, um, it was still, uh, you know, a, a, a place or a society where you could lead a normal life if you kept your nose out of politics and just went about your business. Uh, you know, you you could li- live and, and and have a life. People were still scared, and there was terrible poverty as a result of the uh, U.S. UK uh, imposed embargo on Iraq. But there was still some semblance of a of a normal life uh, after the U.S. came. I mean, uh, you know, people disagree about the different uh, numbers of casualties, but the best estimates uh, from the John Hopkins School of Public Health are that roughly 100,000 uh, Iraqis were killed in the initial U.S. invasion. Um, And since that time, you know, the number of uh, Iraqis that have been killed, again, not just from the U.S., but from all sides, is, you know, probably five or six hundred thousand. And the current Iraqi government, like I was mentioning in that period in 2005, when the Iraqi police, using the commando units that were set up by the United States, you know, they were going around torturing and murdering and killing people. And uh, the United States even, uh, you know, in this last uh, week or so, There are two pretty famous instances where the U.S. uh, did airstrikes on, you know, supposed insurgent uh, locations and killed, I think, 11 civilians in one bombing and 15 civilians in another, Uh, Continue to to detain and arrest, um, you know, tens of thousands of Iraqis, and, um, you know, the current Iraqi uh, security forces are still torturing people. So what good has come of, you know, what George Bush did? There's no good that's come from it, and uh, but there are, there are just enormous amounts of misery and death and destruction that have come from it, and that's why, you know, sane people uh, don't start wars, is because there's no such thing as a clean war. You, you can't kill just the bad guys, you know. Uh, civilians die in great numbers. And, you know, sure, there are times, I think, when it's okay to fight, you know, in self-defense. Uh, you know, I lean towards pacifism, but, uh, you know, I acknowledge that there are times when, hey, you know, you got to do what you got to do to protect your family and your wife and, you know, so on and so forth. But to start a war of choice the way George Bush did, uh, I think, is obviously criminal in the extreme. And uh, you know he'll never be held uh, uh, accountable for that in this life. Uh, but uh, you know, despite all the different sins and terrible things that we all do throughout our lives, the thing that George Bush did uh, in starting that war, uh, I think it, you know the, the heinousness of what he did, you know, cannot be um, cannot be overstated.
0: But but you know the average Mormon is Republican, supporting Bush. You know, it's sort of like Mormon and Republican are almost synonymous, uh, w- at least, you know, within Utah and, and some of the surrounding areas. Um, and I could tell you that the average Mormon listening to you is likely thinking, you know, this is, I'm uncomfortable with this. Um, you know, this nation is, you know, divinely inspired. George Bush is a man of faith. Uh you know, sometimes war is ugly, but the Book of Mormon, if it teaches us anything, it's that freedom is worth protecting. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the average Mormon, I think, is probably feeling like you're a bit of a dissenter, a bit of a troublemaker, a bit of, you know, uh, maybe even not very patriotic. But, but um, I would guess that the average Mormon feels like God is on the side of George Bush in this war. Would you disagree with that? that um, that's likely what the average Utah Mormon, at least, probably feels. And, and what would you say back to that, you know, type of sentiment?
1: Um, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, I, you know, I don't have uh, statistics or surveys or polls, but, you know, obviously from my own anecdotal experience, um, that is, you know, seems to be the view that many uh, Mormons here in Utah hold. But, you know, to be honest with you, when I talk to people about, uh, you know, my experiences in Iraq and talk to them, uh, you know, give them another perspective about what's going on, even very, very conservative Mormons are, in my, you know, experience have been very quick to, um, you know, uh, change their thinking on this issue. And I think a lot of the, you know, I have a lot of conservative friends who, uh, and, uh, you know, my sense is when they heard, like, oh, you know, the U.S. is going to go to war against Iraq, their, their feeling was, hey, you know, we're going to, you know, Saddam is a dictator. We need to go, you know, it's going to help these people to liberate them from Saddam. And, you know, these Mormons didn't know, uh, you know, what uh, the real agenda was of the Bush administration. Um, and they, they didn't know the human suffering that really accompanied the bombing of the initial invasion, and in the tactics the U.S. has used to try and pacify Iraq since then, they don't know those bloody and gory details, and they don't really know the true consequences of uh, that, that the war has brought. And so in their minds, they're still thinking, hey, we're trying to help Iraqis, and this is going to bring them a better life. You know, look, we live under democracy. Life is good for us, and let's help out these Iraqis and give them the same life that we have. Uh, you know, if that were the case, if that were really truly what's going on, I would say, hey, well, you know, maybe you've got a good case for war. Uh, Unfortunately, that's not what's going on. And so I really have found that once, uh, you know, even very conservative Mormons are very, uh, you know, supportive of the war, once they, you know, hear some new facts, hear some new perspectives, uh, once they hear, um, you know, different interpretations of some Mormon scriptures, uh, you know, about the Book of Mormon, for example, I think, one of the big lessons of the book of mormon is that uh, it is about the dangers of war i mean that's in the end what led to the extermination of the nephites is that they were a uh, uh, war loving and warmongering people and they refused you know to 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 stop fighting and so once mormons hear new information new perspectives i think they're very quick uh you know to uh embrace some of these other viewpoints that are more uh, in my opinion at least more in line uh with the scriptures and You know, how can you think differently if you've never heard uh, another perspective? I mean, how can you think differently when you're watching CNN and Fox and the only thing they do is give the government's version of what's going on? And if that's all you're exposed to, well, you know, how can you have a different viewpoint? And so, uh, again, my experience has been that even very conservative Mormons, because they're good at heart, they're good people, uh, you know, they do change their minds on these things. And, you know, with the newspaper, I'm not trying to say, you know, look, I'm a better person than uh, some Mormon who supports the war or I'm going to heaven, you know, before they are. uh, Because, you know, in fact, I'd probably say the opposite is true because I'm uh, in many ways a really bad Mormon. You know, I try, but, uh, you know, I'm not, uh, you know, there are a lot of things I I should do to be a better Mormon. Um, But uh, people like that, it's not like I'm saying I'm better than them because I'm not. I'm just saying because they're very good-hearted people, but I do disagree with their viewpoints and the things that they are supporting. Uh, uh, you know, even though they're supporting them, in, you know, they have good intentions. They think the war is going to help people, and so forth. Uh, it's not helping people. I don't think that means that these Mormons are bad or evil or anything like that. They're just misinformed. Uh, they need to see uh, another viewpoint, and if they're given that opportunity, they're going to they're going to change their minds. So um, I'm actually, you know, really, uh, really confident that Mormons as a whole are going to be much more uh, or much quicker to embrace um, some of the ideas that we're trying to talk about or promote in uh, in my newspaper than, say, the average American would be. Um, And, uh, you know, obviously I could be wrong on that. We'll see if that happens. But, you you know, I really do feel that way.
0: Do you ever... um... And I know this is a tough question, probably putting you on the spot a bit, but do you ever wish that LDS church leaders um, would speak out against the war more?
1: Um, yeah, it's
0: kind of put me on the spot. <laughs> so, you know, it, feel free to answer or not answer or whatever. I'm not trying to get dirt from you. I'm just wondering if you ever think about that or, or if you found ways to try and feel better about that. Or if it's just something that you just kinda of try not to think about. <laughs>
1: um yeah, I mean obviously um you know, church leadership hasn't hasn't come out and, and, and condemned the war. And uh I'm you know, to be honest, I'm really not sure what to make of that. Um, you know, maybe one day I'll have a chance to, to talk to a general authority or a or, or, uh, to the prophet, probably not, but if I did, you know, something I would definitely talk to them about. But, um, you know, I acknowledge that they are, you know, prophets, seers, and revelators. And um, to me, it seems like the appropriate thing to do would be to come out and condemn the war. Uh, but uh, what's going on in their minds or, or what their reasoning is, um, I, I, I just have no idea. And so, uh, You know, that's not something I'm interested in doing, is is saying, well, the leadership of the Church should or should not do this.